As has already been mentioned, this is Advent, a season of waiting and anticipating Christmas. If there was ever a time when we needed Advent, it's now. Christmas has been co-opted from Christ. And uh, the great themes of Christmas now are, you know, Black Friday shopping, Santa's coming to town, and I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Uh, we can do better, and today what I'd like to do is explore three kind of covert themes in the scriptures that come from the first reference to Christmas in the Bible. Uh, our series for Advent is called Christmas BC, and we'll be looking at some of those Old Testament prophecies that anticipate the life, the birth, the life, the death, and the, and the resurrection of Christ in the time to come. So this morning, we will be in Genesis chapter 3 for the first inklings of Christmas in the Bible. I'd like to pray for us as you find your, your way there. Let's, let's pray. Lord, be kind to us now by your word and help us love Jesus more, your son more for what he has done for us. So give us ears to hear now your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, these three kind of covert Christmas themes are embedded in what I'm calling a dragon sandwich this morning, and I'll try to explain that to you as we go. So the first reference is in Genesis chapter 3. Some of your Bibles have a title to this section. It's ominously called The Fall. And it tells the horrific story of how Adam and Eve, though they lived happily in the garden with God, were deceived by the serpent, and they fell into disobedience to God. The one prohibition that he gave them, they could no longer keep. And they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fell into rebellion against God and sin. That is what our sin always is. It's a rebellion against God where we enthrone something else as king in our lives, often, often ourselves. And as a result of that, people who had once upon a time looked happily to walking with God in the garden, and I heard it described this way, think of how your, if you have a puppy, think how your puppy acts when you, came, when you come home, okay? That is what Adam and Eve were like towards God. God's coming, he's walking in the garden. Our puppy gets so excited she pees when we come home. It was like that. Um, but you also, if you have a puppy, you know what it's like when they know they've done something wrong. Their tail goes between their legs, their ears droop, they slink away and hide from you. And that is the state in which we find Adam and Eve in this third chapter of Genesis after they had disobeyed God at the tempting of the serpent. And what follows that sorrowful story are three curses from God upon the three players in the rebellion, the serpent, the woman, and the man. Our focus will be on the curse upon the serpent, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the part we're most interested in this morning, verse 15. I will put, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, some of you at this point are wondering, so this is about Christmas? And I'm going to say, yes. Yes, I, I think it is, and I'll, I'll try to show that for you. 
Um, it's, it's so much about Christmas that it's got a title among scholars that can be rendered this way. This is the first good news, the telling, the first telling of the good news about Christ in all of Scripture. <clears throat> it is the first prophecy in the pages of Scripture, and it is pretty cryptic, and it raises all kinds of questions like, um, who are all those offspring? And what's all this violence and bruising about in this particular verse? And before we answer those questions, I want to show you three themes that are kind of lost these days about Christmas, but we'll find them here. We'll find them in the last book of the Bible this morning. We'll also find them in the birth and life of Christ uh, this morning. Um, the, three, the three Christmas th themes are warfare, suffering, and victory. Look with me. There's warfare in Genesis 3, 15 that points towards the birth of Christ. It's called enmity and hostility. Can you put that verse up for me, uh, 3, 15? Um, there's warfare at the first Christmas, it points out. There's enemy, hostility is the way that it's rendered. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, this this language is associated with murder and warfare. A great hostility has be, been decreed by God between the woman and the serpent. So this is the first slice of our dragon sandwich, right? The serpent, um, as a result of their rebellion, this hostility exists. And the conflict, it says, will extend to their offspring. So warfare is a part of this first prophetic glimpse of the coming of Christ, of Christmas. Second theme is suffering. There's suffering glimpsed at this, this prophecy as well related to, to the birth of Christ. Both the serpent's offspring and that of the woman are said to be bruised. And again, this is violent language. Uh, sometimes it's rendered striking or attacking or crushing Suffering is part of this first glimpse of Christmas. It happens both to, the, to both sets of offspring. We'll focus on the suffering of the woman's offspring. And lastly, there's victory at the first Christmas that we see hinted at here. Both the offspring of the woman and the offspring of this serpent suffer, right, bruising. But the one seems far more severe than the other. The serpent's offspring suffers what could even be considered a mortal blow to the head, while the woman's offspring suffers a less severe wound to the heel. So while there is warfare and resultant suffering that involve both the woman and the serpent and their respective offspring, the offspring of the woman seems here to strike a prevailing view. Think about the imagery. A man comes upon a snake, he crushes its head, while it bites him on the heel. The one is clearly the more severe and the prevailing view. The head crusher prevails over the heel biter, we could say. So there's victory for the wounded offspring of the woman in this first glimpse of Christmas. But let's go back to those kind of questions about who this is about and what all this violence represents um, and try to answer those looking at the fullness of Scripture, an advantage that we have over Adam and Eve. I'm sure they're scratching their heads about this. But as we look at the fullness of Scripture, there's more that can be revealed here. 
Who are we talking about? Well, the serpent throughout Scripture is represented as Satan, the devil. For instance, if we went to the book of Revelation, we would find in chapter 20 that the dragon was seized, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. And the offspring of Satan could broadly be considered all who rebel against God and oppose him, which is a really sobering thought that you could be considered the spawn of Satan by your disobedience to the gospel, your unbelief, and your rebellion against God. Now, the woman, we know her to be Eve, but she's symbolic here of the mother of all humankind. Um, in a collective sense, her offspring represents us all. But in a specific individual sense, her offspring represents the Messiah, um, a single individual. And, and we see that the same language of offspring or seed is used of uh, Abraham later in the book of Genesis, and Paul explains it to us in the New Testament where he writes in Galatians, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. And so I think we could say that the offspring of Abraham that's being talked about here by Paul and the offspring of Eve represent the same individual it's fulfilled most fully in Jesus, who is the Christ. So God here, in this first prophecy on the pages of Scripture, is foretelling three things about the coming of Christ. He'll be born into battle with evil itself. He will suffer and be wounded, and he will prevail and win a great victory. So we'll find all three of those themes in a moment in the life of Christ. But first, let's go to that last book of the Bible, um, the book of Revelation, and look at the other slice of our dragon sandwich in Revelation chapter 12. So Genesis 3 looked forward to Christ's coming. Revelation 12 looks back at Christ's coming and describes these same three great themes. Now, um, Revelation's a book of wild visions that were given to John. Um, there are um, all kinds of evil beasts, cups of wrath, wedding feasts, city with streets of gold, all kinds of wild imagery here. Revelation 12 contains one of those, and it describes the coming of Christ in a nativity set with Three figures, okay? The first one we find in, in verse 2, or verse 1 and 2, rather. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a, on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. So the first of the three figures in John's nativity set, right, is the woman. And no ordinary woman, she's glorious in her appearance, and John tells us she's a sign, she's a symbol. Um, she's most often connected to God's people, especially faithful Israel in the Old Testament. And she, this woman, is pregnant, like seriously pregnant. She's in the throes of labor, about to give birth to a child, a baby boy, as we're about to see. Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. 
Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So this is the second figure in John's nativity set, right? The red dragon. Um, there's a dragon in the manger, and if that isn't wild enough, he has seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems or seven crowns. And rather than guess our way through the minutia, let's say these are symbols of great power, perhaps of earthly kings and rulers. Uh, Professor Alan Johnson says it's a picture of the fullness of evil in its hideous strength. And this symbol of the dragon or the serpent reminds us of that old serpent, the devil himself. Okay? Thirteen times in the book of Revelation, the devil is referred to as a serpent or a dragon. <clears throat> and here he is red, blood red, it seems. And so we find him there crouched in the manger before the woman as she prepares to bring her child into the world so that he can devour it. Um, one writer put it vividly. He said, the devil dragon is hungry. See him there, <clears throat> standing before the woman, towering over her, casting her in his evil shadow. The woman is now dilated to ten. The crown of the baby's head is starting to show. With labored breaths and screams, the woman begins to push the baby into the world as the dragon waits, salivating, licking his chops with his long forked tongue, rubbing his dragon wings together. The devil dragon is ready to devour the child the moment the child tumbles out of the womb. One writer suggested we rewrite the lyrics to one of our most beloved carols to reflect this second figure this way. Hark the herald angels sing, a dragon waits to eat our king. So what Genesis has foretold, Revelation tells us, has now come to pass. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And now in Revelation 12, we move to that third figure in John's nativity set, and, and that's the male child, the boy. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. So this imagery of ruling the nations with a rod of iron comes from Psalm 2 where it says, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. And then it says, you'll break them with a rod of iron. And, and this language applies to the Messiah in Psalm 2. So this baby born to the woman is the Messiah of God, the Christ, we would call him. And God has rescued this Messiah child, and in a, in a single snapshot that really encompasses the whole life of Christ, he's risen up and ascends to the throne of God. So, so John has this nativity set, right, with three pieces. The woman, who is God's faithful people, the murderous dragon, who is Satan himself, and the male child who is Jesus, the Christ. And again, our three kind of secretive Christmas themes are here. The child is born into a battleground, right? 
spiritually. You hear it most explicitly in the very next verse of Revelation 12. It says, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there's no longer any place for them in heaven. And this war in heaven focused not just upon the Christ child, which he was seeking to devour, but on all who follow this child as well. If we look at verse 17, a little farther down in Revelation 12, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, who are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And this battle, it continues to this day against the followers of the, of the child born at Christmas. That's why the Apostle Paul writes to us and he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So <clears throat> like Genesis 3 hints, <clears throat> excuse me, Revelation 12 makes clear Christ is born into a battle, okay? and we see the theme of suffering by the child and those who follow him here as well. In chapter 12, verse 11, uh, they conquered the, the serpent, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. So the Christ child is now portrayed as the lamb in this imagery, and it's his blood that is shed that's described here. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb that implies a suffering unto death, right? And the ones who follow this lamb, they will suffer too. Some of them, it says, even unto death. The apostle Paul is going to write to us, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. We suffer because we follow one who suffered. So there's suffering, a great suffering, Revelation 12 says, around Christ and his people. And lastly, we see the theme of victory here in Revelation 12 as well by the Christ child. And as this scene shifts to this battlefield in heaven, in verse 7, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there's no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So there's this great battle underway between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. And uh, writer Chad Bird once again tweaks our, our Christmas lyrics and says, Silent night, violent night, hell and heaven meet to fight. Right? There's a tremendous battle going on, but there's victory. Good prevails. The great dragon is thrown down. He's defeated. He's banished forever from the presence of God. How did that happen? How's the battle won? Was it a numbers game? Did he have more angels, more firepower, better strategy? John points to something different as the source of victory in verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power 
and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Okay. So victory is attributed here not to angelic might but to the power and authority of Christ, especially his work on the cross. The blood of the lamb is by, by the means by which the victory is, is won, this heavenly voice declares. By the work of Christ, the devil has been thrown down. This devil, as we saw in verse 9, is, a, is an accuser. Um, that language, the word for devil, it, it literally means one who falsely accuses. As John writes here, he's the accuser of our brothers. He accuses them day and night. And Professor Alan Johnson writes about this and explains it to us. He says, in times past, Satan's chief role as adversary was directed toward accusing God's people of disobedience to God. The justice of these accusations was recognized by God, and therefore Satan's presence was tolerated. But now the presence of the crucified Savior in God's presence provides the required satisfaction of God's justice with reference to our sins. Therefore, Satan's accusations are no longer valid, and he is cast out. So clearly, Satan is a defeated accuser. Christ's work is greater on our behalf. Chad Bird vividly describes it. He says, the dragon who failed to devour the child in the manger swallows the man atop the cross. In so doing, unbeknownst to this beast, he ate poison. For if anything will destroy an accuser, it is taking freedom into his bowels. And at the death of Jesus, there was a great rattling of chains. The links of evil that bound us snapped in two. A world held in bondage to the dragon was, in the death of the Son of God, immediately and irrevocably freed forever from its captivity. Okay. So we see him again in the last reference to the Christmas story in Scripture, warfare and suffering and a great victory. Now, look with me, the same three themes in the incarnation of the Son of God, his birth and his life his death, and his resurrection. First, he is born into warfare, right? We see it in, in Herod's evil decree as he tries to kill the Christ child. It says in verse 2 of Matthew, or chapter 2 of Matthew, Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time they had ascertained from the wise men. And this has the dragon's Fingerprints, as it were, all over it, right? We see it when Jesus began his public ministry. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We see it in Jesus' repeated conflict with the demonic. Mark chapter 1, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus came into this world at war with evil. This was central to his purpose. As John would later write, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So warfare is part of the Christmas story. Suffering is part of the Christmas story. From the moment of his birth, 
Jesus is threatened by evil, and he must flee for his very life to Egypt. This life of deprivation and hardship continues throughout his life until his dying moment when Isaiah uses the imagery of our passage in Genesis 3, the crushing and the bruising, to predict the Messiah's final suffering. Isaiah 53, he writes of the Messiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There's an ancient liturgy um, that chronicles in a really provocative way this suffering that was to mark Christ in his incarnation and especially at the end of his life. It goes like this. He whom none may touch is seized. He who looses Adam from the curse is bound. He who tries the hearts and inner thoughts of man is unjustly brought to trial. He who closed the abyss is shut in prison. He before the powers whom the powers of heaven stand trembling stands before Pilate. The creator is struck by the hands of his creature. He who comes to judge the living and the dead is condemned to the cross. The destroyer of hell is enclosed in a tomb. O thou who dost endure all these things in thy tender love, who has saved all men from the curse, O long-suffering Lord, glory to thee. Long-suffering Lord. Jesus was born into suffering at Christmas so that he could suffer in our place on the cross. He became our sin-bearer and took the stripes we deserve. We also find that third theme woven into the Christmas story, the victory that Genesis anticipated and Revelation described, we see it all throughout the story. Victory at his birth, Herod's plot to destroy the Christ child failed. In every demonic contest, Jesus prevails. We find demons regularly groveling at his feet and begging him for mercy. And at the cross, we find his ultimate prevailing over his enemies. Paul says on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The book of Hebrews says that because children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Professor Greg Lanier kind of summarizes Revelation 12 this way. He says, in two words, this passage, Revelation 12, in its retelling of the nativity, gives us not only the theme of both the entire book of Revelation and even the whole Bible, but the very meaning of Christmas itself. Jesus wins. There's victory in Christmas, and it is ours as well. It's really interesting. The Apostle Paul takes the language that points to the Messiah in Genesis 3, and in Romans 16, he applies them to us in terms of victory. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So the Christmas themes are warfare and suffering and victory. We see it in the serpent in Genesis, 
and in the dragon of Revelation and of the incarnation of Christ sandwiched in between. So what does this dragon sandwich mean for you and me this Christmas? Let me give you two very important things to think about during Advent. And Advent is partly that. It's a season to find time to think about what it means that the Son of God put on flesh and became one of us. First, know that you are so deeply loved that Jesus would enter into battle for you. And in that battle, he will suffer greatly, even unto death. You are greatly loved, so greatly loved that Jesus would enter into battle for you and suffer for you even unto death. It's fascinating. There was a Franciscan university in Ohio that posted some ads recruiting students on Facebook. Um, You can see one of their ads there. This is the one that Facebook banned. Okay. And um, the monitors at Facebook said the reason for their rejection was that they found the depiction of the cross shocking, sensational, and excessively violent. Even more fascinating is that the university, the Franciscan University of Steubenville responded with a blog post where they agreed with Facebook's assessment. This is what they wrote. Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all of those things. It was the most sensational action in history. Man executed his God. It was shocking. Yes, God deigned to take on flesh and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, citing Philippians 2. And it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged to within an inch of his life, nailed naked to a cross and left to die. All the hate and all the sin in the world poured out its wrath upon his humanity. They went on to say, though, what held him there was not so much the nails, but his love. They said he was God. He could have descended from the cross at any moment. No, it was love that kept him there. Love for you and for me, that we not be eternally condemned for our sins, but might have life eternal with him and his Father in heaven. So you are greatly loved by Father, Son, and Spirit. Loved enough to go to war and suffer death for you. I, I, my, one of my favorite little Christmas lyrics is by Christina Rossetti, and she simply says, love came down at Christmas. Love all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas. Star and angels gave the sign. So this Christmas, you should think deeply about the love of Christ for you and what he was willing to pay for you. There's a second reflection I would suggest, and that is that you have, no matter what your Christmas troubles look like, and I know Christmas amplifies them for many of us, um, you have a sure and greater hope. Greater than your troubles, greater than your disappointments, even than your sins. This is what caused John to write these triumphant words. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? By your faith in Jesus, you share in his victory. 
Your hope is made sure. When sorrows seem unbearable, your hope is steadfast. Billy Graham used to tell a story about a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, he was a Russian um, author, poet, philosopher, and a political prisoner back during the Soviet era. He was in a Soviet prison, prison camp in Siberia when at one point he had become completely discouraged and decided to give up his life. His plan <clears throat> was to simply go out into the field and stop working, lean on his shovel, and wait for the guards to come and beat him to death. However, when he stopped working, another prisoner reached over with his shovel and quickly drew a cross at his feet, then erased it before a guard could see it. And Solzhenitsyn said, at that moment, I knew that this was the most important thing in all the world and that God truly loved me. He said, it gave me the courage to go on and face the future. So there is warfare and there is suffering and there is victory in Christ at Christmas for you. There is one who in love has entered the battle and suffered and prevailed for you. And this morning, you may not know that love or that hope. It may be strange to you, but know that it is for you, available to you, in this child born at Christmas, Jesus, whom we call the Christ. If you will forsake your own ways and trust and hope in him, casting your sins on him to be your sin bearer, as it were, and make a way for you back to God. Um, that transaction happens by the faith that John described that helps you overcome the world and know the love and hope of Christ. So let me close our time um, by praying for you, uh, whether you know that love yet or not. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for um, these sobering truths that your, your son Jesus was willing to enter into um, a battle with evil and suffer greatly, even giving his life for us. And that that brings to us an unshakable hope um, in our future and in our relationship with you. So Lord, have mercy on those of us who believe this morning. May our faith be strengthened and deepened and made steadfast. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are listening in who don't know this love. They know they don't. They don't have this hope that you would, in your mercy, grant that to them now, even as they pray their humble words to you and ask for that help. Lord, have mercy upon them. We pray this, Jesus, in your great name.